If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From grimy back alleys and ghastly churchyards to debtors' prisons and old curiosity shops, Charles Dickens evoked a vision of Victorian London that's still vivid today. And as Lee Jackson reveals in his new book, Dickens Land, ever since these books were published, literary fans have visited London to seek out traces of this lost world that Dickens described. I spoke to Lee to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me, Lee. My first question to you, how has Dickens become so intrinsically linked with London? Dickens is the London writer, right? He, he was described by one critic in the late 19th century as a, a special correspondent for posterity. And he writes in such detail about the city. And, he, you know, he walked the city looking for locations for his book. When people scout for film locations, Dickens was very much uh, looking for those for his books. And he's a very visual writer, intensely visual, you know, goes in from the sort of biggest panoramas of London life, you know, fog sweeping over the whole of the River Thames to the smallest possible detail. So I think we think of his world in very visual terms, and I think that draws people in. 
Absolutely. What do you think it is that is drawing people in there? What do you think it is about Dickens' story and perhaps Dickens himself that has captured people's imagination so much? I think also he's at the sort of cusp of modernity almost in the 19th century. Um, You've got a city that is both sort of ancient. He, He picks out all these sort of obscure local areas in the city um, you know, the inns of court, uh, the city churchyards in the, in the city of London, uh, the law courts. But equally, it's, it's a city that's rapidly changing um, as well. It's a city that's becoming modern. We're looking at new bridges, new roads, and then you see new sewer networks and so on later in the century. And it's just on, on the brink of sort of the old disappearing and the new coming in. And I think that also chimes with, you know, London for our experience, London, over the last, you know, 200 years, really. My book is about Dickens' tourism, and we've got this remarkable history of 150 years of people going back to Dickens and trying to find the places in his books. So, you know, there's obviously great appeal, and I suppose I've been trying to fathom what that appeal is. Yeah. So, as you say, your book really delves into Dickens' tourism. When did Dickens' tourism begin? Well, it's interesting. It doesn't actually begin really in his lifetime. If you look at other um, figures in the 19th century, so Wordsworth's Lake District or Walter Scott's Scotland, you actually see people exploring that while those books are being published, and it's certainly in the author's lifetime. Dickens' tourism is slightly different. It's more after he's died, he obviously is sort of inducted into this sort of national pantheon at Westminster Abbey is amongst the greats and that, that's certainly a factor while it's after his death um, but it also I think is the late Victorians became increasingly fascinated with the history of London and the idea in particular that there might be sort of historic places that you wouldn't have normally thought of as historic so you know traditionally people would look at the palaces or the churches or you know the, sort of the great buildings of London but towards the ninth, end of the 19th century there's suddenly an interest in sort of the smaller places, in the in the pubs, in the houses, places that didn't even necessarily have famous names attached to them in terms of living people. And Dickens sort of is part of that. Um, you know, Dickens London is the back alley as well. It's it, it's it's the local pub, and people start to see those in a different way as as heritage, basically. And so it, there is this sort of heritage boom at the end of the nineteenth century, and Dickens tourism figures in that as well. Interesting. But Dickens was also very famous in his own lifetime, wasn't he? Could you tell us a bit about whether he courted celebrity and and what role he played in in cultivating his own legend, really? I mean, certainly Dickens was, you know, arguably the most famous literary figure um, of his day. If you look at when he died in 1870, um, so many articles um, in the press just start with the three words, Dickens is dead you know, exclamation mark. And there's one article that just puts that at the start of every paragraph because it's such a shock that this sort of titan of the arts has vanished. And I think, I'm think i trying to think of sort of comparison in modern times, you know, maybe David Bowie dying, that, that you know, it sort, of, it sort of touched everyone. Everyone had read his books. Everyone knew those characters. So yes, he absolutely had. He had a worldwide fame. He had toured America twice. Towards the end of his life, he was giving these sort of vibrant public public readings of his work, which was actually one of the things that sort of wore, wore him down and maybe maybe contributed to, you know, his death. Um, so, but it was in public, you know, recreating his own works on stage in the late sort of 1860s as well. So there was that. And, you know, he had this larger-than-life, um, very intense sort of personality and appearance. Um, 
Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women, who's one of the people I, I write about in the book, um, saw him both in England when she was touring England and in the States when he was giving tours in the States. And she and she she loves his reading. She loves his work, but she hates his appearance because he comes on stage with his hair all greased up, uh, with these sort of very dandyish sort of watch chains tiling off his waistcoat. It was not, you know, it was, it was this. It was dressing like a young man. And you know, Dickens had this, I think, a very high opinion of himself and how he looked and so forth. Um, so he was very much putting himself out there. He was very much um, a great figure, a great man, and very conscious of his own appearance and his own commercial appeal. Um, and obviously, yes, that contributes to people's interest in him after his death. I think Dickens is best remembered today for these great sweeping books that depict the highs and very much the lows of Victorian society. So what were some of the kinds of places that he was inspired by? Was it all, as you say, grimy back streets, grubby garrets and those kind of prisons, debtors prisons and those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think his, his reputation even after his death was... Partly this is, you know, the sort of the back alley and the slum that this is what Dickens takes people into. And, and, and there's some truth in that, you know, the, the, his sort of exploration of those of those sort of the seamier sides of London in, in books like Oliver Twist or Bleak House were groundbreaking in a way. A lot of the sort of serious social investigation tied to sort of government reform and so on in the 19th century was borrowing a bit from Dickens in how he spoke about it because he actually sort of set a template almost. So he looks at those back streets and back alleys He's very interested, I think, in pubs as well and in shops. He's interested in sort of public shared places that have like a history. You know, it's a great piece in Sketches by Boz where he, he traces the history of a London shop through sort of six or seven different iterations. He talks about its decay um, and, you know, how it ends. It's just, even, a, even a school at one point, then it becomes a shop and then it becomes a private house. He loves seeing these sort of buildings change through history, I think, Um he loved, I think, the atmosphere, the sort of quaint atmosphere of places like coaching inns and the inns of court. And even one of the things I'm particularly interested in the book is London Bridge. He wrote, there's that famous scene on London Bridge in Oliver Twist where Nancy, prostitute in the book, who is kindly towards the, the hero Oliver, um, gives away the secrets of Fagin and Sykes to, to Mr. Brownlow. But she does it as, at a meeting on London Bridge, of all places. And she chooses that location. And it's like... It's almost like a fairy story in the book. She says, I'll be there at midnight until the clock strikes 12 if you want to come and meet me. And he does some very interesting stuff in that, in that, in that section in the book where he merges sort of the vision of London Bridge, which at the time was a newly built modern bridge. It had been built in 1831 by Rennie. It was a grand sort of sweeping new statement about the modernity of London. And in the book, Dickens mixes that with hints of the old bridge, with hints of medieval London Bridge, and there's this great sort of tension between the past and the present. And in a sense, you know, the criminal class that Nancy belongs to is part of the past. Brownlow is part of the present. And there's all this sort of great sort of gothic detail poured in there as well. So he's very interested in London, in places in London, and changes in London from the past and to the present. And London Bridge is a great example because for a couple of years, you could see both the old medieval bridge and the new one side by side. They didn't demolish the old bridge until the new one had been built. And I think this stuck in Dickens' imagination. I think that's possibly why it appears in Oliver Twist. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. I'm really interested by the depiction of the, shall we say, less salubrious locations in Dickens. So I'm thinking of the slums, of these dens of thieves that Dickens is so well known for. Was he, as an author, going to these areas of London, real places, and writing about real places? Or was his vision of this underworld, this Dickensian underworld, was it more of a kind of middle-class fantasy of what that looks like? I think it's a bit of both, in that he certainly is aware of previous writing on the subject, uh, like Sir Pierce Egan, who does this sort of, these Regency books, who go across London sampling everything from, you know, the sort of the night houses of the Haymarket to the, the dirtiest pubs in Wapping to the, uh, you know, the fancy ballrooms of the West End. So that, that sort of writing had appeared in the 1830s. And Dickens, I think, plays with those ideas, those sort of familiar ideas of these sort of underworld locations. But he also was absolutely going out and visiting them. You know, he writes a journalistic piece called On Duty with Inspector Field. He goes out with the detectives into the heart of St Giles. He has a favourite detective called Inspector Field in late 1840s, early 1850s. And, you know, he asked him to take him to the to the worst slums in London, you know, in, in Seven Dials, St Giles, that what's now the sort of heart of the Covent Garner shopping district but at the time was a, an area where you would not go into at night as a middle-class person unless you had a police escort. Later, you know, in the 1860s, we have the, the Opium Den in Edwin Drood, his, his final book, and that was based on a real-life uh, real opium den in Bluegate Fields, which is Shadwell, basically, in the East End. Um, but equally, that opium den became sort of a celebrity opium den. Everyone went to see, had the Prince of Wales popping in to have a look at it. So there was a sort of blurring, actually, between the authentic slum and the inauthentic in the 19th century, be, partly because of people like Dickens who publicised these places, and they become almost tourist destinations in themselves. 
That is something I wanted to ask you about. In this boom in Dickens tourism, were all of these locations really authentic? Or were there some people who, you know, saw an opportunity to cash in on the Dickens connection? There was a mixture of sort of the authentic and the sort of wishful thinking and then the absolutely invented. So authentic places, you know, let's take an example, uh, the Russell Court Burial Ground, which is... the burial ground that appears in Bleak House. It's in several scenes in the book. Spoilers coming if you haven't read Bleak House. <laughs> but towards the end of the book, Lady Deglock, this crucial character, sort of dies on on this burial ground steps, and it's a very symbolic moment. Um, Dickens based that on a real burial ground in Russell Court, which was like a, a slummy network of alleys just south of Drury Lane Theatre. And from the 1870s onwards... Um, that burial ground, it's represented actually in a, in a very popular play in the West End, uh, which was intensely popular. And then people flocked to the real place to see what was mentioned in the book, what's been shown in the play. And so that was very real and very particular. Um, and that was demolished at the end of the 19th century to make way for new housing. Wishful thinking, you're talking more about places like the George Inn in Southwark, which is a great old coaching and it dates back to the 1500s. Um, but... If you actually look at Dickens's work, it's mentioned in one sentence in Little Dorrit, um, but it became this great Dickensian centre for every lover of Dickens, um, partly because it was sort of the last coaching in standing, really, in central London. So it's a Dickensy place, but not a place that Dickens really had much to do with or wrote about. And then they absolutely invented um, the prime example of that, which is largely kind of forgotten these days, but was very popular in the early 20th century. The old Curiosity Shop, which is a, a Tudor building um, in Lincoln's Inn Fields, just near, well, it's now part of the London School of Economics campus. And it's this small rickety building with a sloping tiled roof and the floor sinking below the sort of modern day pavement because it's that, you know it's a few hundred years old. And on the front, it says, um, the old Curiosity Shop in sort of Gothic writing, immortalized by Charles Dickens. And it has nothing to do with Dickens. In the 1880s, every owner of antique shop or old old clothes shop called themselves the old curiosity shop because they knew it appealed to passing tourists. But the owner of this particular shop had the genius of actually writing the old curiosity shop in this sort of ornate Gothic font on the front and then adding immortalised by Charles Dickens. And it's like the title page of a book and tourists loved it. And it's been a sort of Dickensian destination for better or worse, for about 150 years, and has no known connection to Dickens or the book. In fact, if you read the book, at the end of the book, Dickens says the the shopping question in the book has been demolished to make way for street improvements. <laughs> so if you want to take Dickens at his word, if even if there was a real shop he based it on, one shop, then you know he says it's disappeared, don't even bother looking for it. And yet this shop was in, intensely popular, particularly with uh, foreign tourists, American tourists in particular. You know, it was, it was like the Tower of London or you know, something else you'd definitely go and see when you're in London. I want to pick you up on the point about American tourists, because as your book highlights, Americans have been as mad for these sites as anybody in London. Why do you think that is? I think Americans are, are more keen um, than anyone in the UK. That, and if you look at sort of 19th century accounts of literary tourism, it's always about it's always about Americans, and it's always pointing out that Americans actually know more about Dickens than Londoners. Um, I think because, well, I mean, on in the broadest terms, certainly in the late 19th century, early 20th century. 
there was uh, a real longing among lots of Americans to have this sort of cultural connection back to England, to feel that they had extensive cultural roots dating back centuries and certainly dating back uh, into the 19th century. But I think more specifically for Americans, London is this sort of fantasy place that they've read about in fiction first. And then you come to it having read this great detailed visual description. And I, you know, I feel the same about New York. You know, I grew up reading Spider-Man comics where all, all the rooftops of New York were so beautifully detailed. And it, to go, I went to Manhattan in the early 2000s and it was amazing because this, this was the place I sort of lived in in my imagination uh, in my childhood. And, and, you know, Dickens was extensively read by young readers as well in the 19th century. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier Louisa May Alcott, uh, who was you know a great fan of Dickens, and she she read Dickens growing up as as did so many uh, people in Britain and America, and so it was almost you know this this sudden if you came to the UK from abroad and you step onto the London streets, it was this fantasy that suddenly made real. And Alcott says you know it was as if I'd gotten into a novel. So it's this idea of sort of virtually immersing yourself in this sort of fantasy world. It's almost like a kind of virtual reality. What can you tell us about Dickens' own houses? So some of our listeners might have been to the Charles Dickens Museum, which is in Bloomsbury today, but you also look at a different house of his, uh, number 13 Johnson Street in Camden. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Yes, I mean, 13 Johnson Street was actually the Dickens family, and by the Dickens family, I mean when Dickens was a child. So, you know, his we, it was Dickens himself, there was his father and mother, and, oh, I have to count them, he had... Three, I hesitantly say three sisters alive and two brothers. Forgive me, Dickensians, if I got that wrong at the time. But after his father um, was imprisoned in 1824 for debt, which was this sort of crucial life-changing event for the family, but he gets out of prison thanks to a fortuitous inheritance, a very Dickensian turn of events, of course. And they moved to Camden, which is just on the edge of London at the time. It's on the sort of the outer, the outer limits of North London and to a road called Johnson Street. And that was their longest residence in London, as far as we can make out. They were, the family were there uh, from 1824, when Dickens was 12 years old, to about 1829 or 1830. And it was a little terraced house. It wasn't the most salubrious area. I had a look who else who was there at the time. And there was, for instance, a, a laundress a few doors down, you know, doing people's washing for them. So it wasn't it wasn't like a very middle class street in that sense. But it was, it was, it was a lower middle class to working class sort of terraced house. It never got so much recognition during um, Dickens' lifetime or immediately after his death. His, his biographer, John Forster, writes about a different house in Bayham Street in Camden, which they were at for a much shorter time, but that sort of got much more romanticised. And Johnson Street, where they'd been for five years, was almost forgotten. But then in the 1920s, another American in London, a Reverend Langstaff, sees a plaque that had been fixed onto this Johnson Street house by the London County Council. And he has this sort of rather odd idea. He says, well, why couldn't this building, which was kind of like in a slum state now, it was very decrepit, it was probably going to be pulled down, could this building be made into a children's library? So Dickens' childhood home for the space about four, about five or six years, I think, um, is converted by this sort of enthusiast, uh, John Langstaff, into a children's library for the children of Camden. And... It doesn't last very long. It's demolished in the end in in 1931. But briefly, this was one of two Dickens houses that have been sort of repurposed, along with the Dickens Museum, which you mentioned, as this sort of tribute to the great author in, in the 1920s. And it was aimed to be sort of this beacon 
for the children of the poor children of Camden. Camden was a very poor district at the time, and um, but it was it's also had this sort of Victorian feel to it. So, for instance, when the children went in, uh, they all had to be washed to avoid you know any kind of uh, infestation coming in with them, and they all had to take uh, they all had to wear a smock so that they didn't damage any of the books. And so it just disappeared after a few years. But it's one of those sort of little outbursts of Dickensian enthusiasm, of the sort of Dickens tourism industry and the sort of love of recreating all things Dickens. So we have houses that have been demolished. We have slums that are swept away. Where can we still find traces of Dickens land in London today? Yes, I mean, it's hard, you know, how specific and how general you want to be. So I would say... On the most general level, if you go to somewhere like Lincoln's Inn, which is one of the ancient lawyers' colleges of London, it has these sort of pristine Georgian, late Georgian and Victorian sort of terraces. It's often used for filming. You, you'll recognise it for many films. But of course, Dickens is, is fascinated by the inns of court, these lawyers' colleges as well, and they appear in his books. And it, you know, even in the 19th century, they have this slightly odd, interesting atmosphere to them. So Dickens uses that. And so if you can get on a tour of the old hall, not the new one they built in the sort of mid-19th century, the old hall, this sort of uh, panelled room uh, with stained glass, and it would have been candlelit in the 19th century, that is the site of the Court of Chancery in Bleak House, the opening chapter of Bleak House, where all these fusty lawyers are gathered in this fog-drenched room. You can still go there. One of the and one version of Bleak House in the 1980s was actually they they filmed in the actual hall. So there are places like that, places like Clerkenwell Green, Oliver Twist. You know that the famous scene where he sees Dodger picking someone's pockets and realizes what sort of state he's got into, and then he's pursued through the streets. Well, you know. I, Contrary to what you, you'll read someplace, you can't find the specific bookshop this happened at. But the green itself is still has this uh, very 18th, 19th century feel. The Sessions House, the great courthouse um, that would have dominated the green in the 19th century. And I think perhaps one of the reasons Dickens sets that scene there, because it's this, this cr- criminality happening under the very eyes of this sort of uh, one of the greatest courthouses in London. That's still there on the green and the streets around there and towards Islington and towards the, the eastern park, just this labyrinth of sort of Georgian streets. So on a sort of general level, there's there's certainly things you could find there. Um, I think you could also look at, there are some sort of odd specific places. So sort of St. Olaf's Church in Hart Street near the Tower of London, uh, not in the novels, but there's one of his, Dickens' great pieces of journalism is investigating the sort of decaying world of the city of London. The city of London was it's sort of in decline in a sense in the 19th century in that its actual population of residents was just leaving in droves and it was becoming the commercial sort of centre we know today. And so you have all these old churches which used to be full of people on a Sunday, you know, worshipping, but all those actual residents have gone as the city gets commercialised. And so Dickens investigates that and he comes to St. Olaf's Church, which he calls St. Ghastly Grim, partly because of the state of the churchyard is also neglected and overgrown and foul. But also, and you can see this today, if you look at the gatehouse, it has these carved stone skulls, these sort of mouldering now stone skulls, uh, which are meant to be, you know, memento mori, to remind you of your, of your own mortality. Quirky places like that. Fragments, you can find, say, the wall of the Marshalsea prison. So the prison where Dickens's father was in prison for debt in, in 1824, and which he writes about in such detail in uh, Little Dorrit. There's only a wall left but there's a plaque and uh, various other sort of small things laid into the pavement there to remind you about Dickens. There's bits and bobs like that. And and the, the final one, I'd say, is a really quirky one, uh, which I write about in my book, Nancy's Steps. So if you 
go to Southwark Cathedral and you look at the steps from near the cathedral leading up to Tower Bridge, there's a plaque which says these are this is the site of Nancy's steps uh, when Nancy was murdered in Oliver Twist. Now, the site problem with that is that Nancy is not murdered in Oliver Twist on the steps. <laughs> She's murdered at home. It's a domestic, real nasty case of domestic violence in the novel. So it's, it's, it doesn't happen there in the book, at least. And, of course, you know, I guess it's alluding to the film Oliver, where we all remember the ending of the musical Oliver, where she is indeed on the musical. She's murdered on the steps for convenience, I guess, in the, in the plot of the film. So, but, so the plaque is wrong about it being the steps, but it's also wrong about it being the steps in the first place. It's the wrong steps. The steps in the book um, lead down to the riverside, lead down to the Thames. These steps come back to the cathedral, the opposite direction. And the steps in the book are a wide set of landing stairs going down to sort of the water side. But you can still see them. If you go up to the top of London Bridge, so you're actually on the sort of parapet of London Bridge, don't stand on the parapet, but, you know, next to the <laughs> parapet of London Bridge and peer down on the, um, on the western side, at low tide, you can see the final two or three steps of Nancy's steps, which were basically filled in when they built the new bridge in the 1960s. So it depends what granularity you want from Dickens' London. A lot of it has been demolished. Uh, and you, I think you mentioned the museum in Dowdy Street. Absolutely, anyone interested in Dickens should go there. Um, it's an astonishing place. So yeah, I, th I think those would cover some of the possibilities, certainly. Well, all the keen Dickens heads listening will be stood by that parapet yes. on London Bridge, waiting for low tide exactly. just to just get wait. against the steps. <laughs> so finally, what do you think that Dickens himself would have made of all this? People hunting out the locations for his books, the, all the plaques, people trying to uncover tiny traces of the world that he he created. I mean, it's really hard to say. I think I think broadly speaking, he would have hated it. I think he would have appreciated the admiration and the fact his books have such longevity and that the stories, you know, the, the, certainly the story of Oliver Twist, uh, the story of A Christmas Carol has, let's be honest, it's transcended the original book. It's just a sort of a cultural icon that we all we all know it from films, TV and so on. So I think he would have been very impressed by that. But I think he would have not liked the tourism side at all. Um, there's loads of examples in his books where he really has a go at tourists. So in Pictures from Italy, which is a travelogue he writes about his time, he, you know, they have, the family takes the family to Italy for several months and writes this book about it. And he writes about Mr. and Mrs. Davis, who are this archetypal tourist couple. And she basically sees nothing of Italy because she's just constantly messing about with a handbag and just it's not really paying any attention. And he, on the other hand, Mr. Davis, um, is always poking things with his umbrella and, uh, and opening up urns and dig digging his nose into things he shouldn't be. And it's sort of the archetypal annoying tourist for Dickens. And I always, he wasn't very keen on guidebooks either. I always remember with the Crystal Palace when it moved to Sydenham in South London. So when they rebuilt it in Sydenham in South London, where it was until the 1930s, and it burned down famously, of course. But in the in the 1850s, it's rebuilt in South London. And it was this sort of themed guide to history. You know, each, each room was like a medieval court, a Roman court. Um, you know, it was sort of the world through the ages from prehistory to modern times. And there was a set of guidebooks produced. And in one letter, Dickens describes those guidebooks as flatulent botheration. And I think that sort of sums up his idea of tourists and tourism. He was a tourist often, you know. He, he went to literary tour sites. He, he visited Shakespeare's birthplace, but he's always rather tetchy about it. And I think, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't like 
the idea of his work just being known through the prism of tourism. In, in Little Dorrit, he talks again about sort of Italy and Rome, and the characters in the book go to Rome. And he describes all these tourists walking around with guidebooks, and he says they're, they're experiencing Rome uh, through somebody else's sieve. And I think that's his view of sort of guides and tourism, that you, you're in danger of missing out on the original. And I think he would be annoyed if he thought people were missing out on the original content of his books. And actually, for Dickens, also the moral message of his books. That was Lee Jackson speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Lee's book, Dickens Land, The Curious History of Dickens' London, is out now published by Yale. And if you fancy a jaunt back to Dickensland yourself, then check out the BBC's recent adaptation of Great Expectations. That's on iPlayer now, alongside adaptations of A Christmas Carol and Little Dorrit. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.